Hello, my name is Eric, and I'll be reading the text for this morning. Uh, you can feel free to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, be reading verses 5 through 9, uh, or you can feel free to follow along through the YouVersion app or simply by looking up at the screen. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Thanks, Eric. This morning, uh, we're continuing in our series uh, entitled Illuminated. <clears throat> and uh, this morning's title is actually uh, Perspective. And uh, the series encompasses the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, which is a, a letter written to the Hebrews, uh, which were uh, Hebrew uh, converts to Christianity. And uh, as I was kind of reflecting on uh, on my life as we began preparation for the message this morning, I thought of how many times I sat back and thought that uh, my dad had no idea what it is that I was going through. Uh, there were so many times in my life that I thought my parents just didn't have a clue, you know, moments that I went, you know, back into my room and just shut the door uh, because I didn't slam the door. That only happened like once. And then I realized... <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Uh, turns out I don't own that door. <laughs> I don't own the house. I don't, there's nothing I owned. I just lived there. So um, I was reminded of that from time to time. So, uh, you know, I, I just remember thinking like, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know anything. They don't understand. My dad has no idea what it's like to be a boy. <laughs> just has no clue. I mean, but like a teenager, like a teenage guy, you know, it's just so bizarre when we think about the things that we think no one understands. Oftentimes, we're talking about something that, in fact, they do understand or that they could understand. Situationally, they've been a part of on some level in some way. And then there are things that are even more personal than that, that seem like so specific that how could anybody actually understand what we're going through? I can say or assume that most everybody in the room today and probably listening by podcast um, has never heard the words, um, you may never walk again. Now, maybe you have heard that, but maybe not in the unique way that I heard it. I was about 12 years old. I had been running through the, the woods. We were playing a game of capture the flag, and uh, we were uh, running through the forest. And uh, as we were running through the forest, there was a uh, a bunch of underbrush that had been cut that year, and so they cut a bunch of uh, a bunch of smaller trees, saplings, and stuff like that to clear uh, the woods. And uh, it was in Tully area, and uh, there was a stump about an inch in diameter where they had cut 
in an angle, all this underbrush, and I was running after someone as hard as I could, and, or I was running from someone, honestly, I don't really remember, but I tripped over a huge root and fell forward, and when I fell forward, I, I felt this sharp pain, and I was kind of writhing around, I was trying to stand, and I couldn't. It was such a bizarre type feeling, and uh, my dad came running over, he was in the woods, it was like a, a bunch of us kind of camped out. And he came running over. He goes, stay on the ground, stay on the ground. And uh, I was like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. I just need help getting up. He goes, you're not okay. You need to stay on the ground. I was like, no, dad, just help me up. And so he's like, stay on the ground. You know those moments where you're like, you're insisting you're fine and someone else is insisting you're not. And it's like one of those moments like, dad, just help me up. He's like, okay, fine. And so he reached out and grabbed my hand and lifted me up. And uh, my foot was pointed in the wrong direction. And I won't go into too many details, but I was not all right, turns out. <laughs> Dad was correct. And uh, I had um, the force of the impact of my fall had actually uh, caused that stump about an inch in diameter coupled with my body weight to go into my knee. It actually dislocated my knee at the joint, popped my kneecap off. Won't go into a lot of details because it would be awkward if everyone started vomiting. Although it would be amazing. Like, remember that time? <laughs> like, yeah, he threw up and then she threw up and then he threw up on her and <laughs> and I'm like, well, and we're done. Welcome to Center Way. God bless. <laughs> what do I do? Anyway, um, I digress. So hopefully if you were feeling sick, I've changed the subject enough. Um, they decided to, uh, that the best thing to do was uh, to get me out of the woods. They dialed 911. And it was a long, long story that has a lot of different uh, details associated with it. But um, there was, uh, I think I've actually shared at one point part of this story, which I think is too funny not to share again. Uh, they got me to a clearing uh, where the, um, the hospital, the emergency people, I'm not really sure what to call them, the emergency responders, thought it best to actually airlift me out because of where I was in the woods. And so we got to this clearing, and there was a family reunion in this clearing. There had been tents set up, like professionally set up, and uh, there's a helicopter hovering over. And so they're, they're just tearing this tent down, and they're moving chairs and tables and just hundreds of people just moving everything to clear this thing so this helicopter can land. And they get it all cleared out, and this helicopter starts to come down, and all of a sudden it lifts back up, and it turns out the trees were were coming in too far. It didn't have clearance to land. So they're like, sorry. <laughs> so I don't know if that was your family reunion, whoever you are, if you're listening online, that would be amazing. I'd love to meet you. But uh, in either case, we just, just kept on driving then. <laughs> and uh, so they drove me a little lower to where an ambulance actually met us. And uh, it would have been pretty cool if I was able to fly in a helicopter. But um, a long story short, uh, they ended up having to do surgery on my knee and uh, there was extensive damage done to my knee that I won't go into detail for. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but there was a, a very um, paramount moment in the recovery process. Uh, I, was, I had my leg strapped into a ginormous machine, and uh, the doctor came in, and uh, he had these arm braces with like a handle strap. I'm not really sure what they're officially called, braces, I don't know. And uh, he came in with those, and I thought, wow, those are weird. And uh, he said, you need, to, you need to get familiar with these. We'll, uh, we'll have you fitted for yours um, so you can get on your way once we're done. And uh, I was like, I, I don't understand. You know, like, is that part of the process? Like, I'm going to, how long will I have those? And he goes, well, that's why you're going to be fitted for them. Um, you're going to have these for the rest of your life. And I was like, What? It's like, I'm not going to have those for the rest of my life. And uh, so I was kind of uh, annoyed, to say the least. Spoiler alert. I don't have them, uh, but in, uh, in, either, uh, in either case, I, I told the guy to get out, 
I was like, I'm not putting those on. I was about 12 years old at the time, and uh, I could overhear the conversation that he had in the hallway with my parents after about the third or fourth time that he came into the room over a series of several days. He told my parents that I had to accept reality, that um, they weren't doing me any favors by encouraging a a fantasy that um, in some way I would be able to walk again. Uh, It was pretty clear to them at that point that I had damaged the growth plate in my knee and that my leg would never grow beyond uh, my amazing height right there, which was about four feet. And uh, so even if I, uh, you know, if I did continue to grow, spoiler alert, I did, um, that, uh, (laughs) that my leg would potentially never grow from my knee down, that it would remain smaller and that it would involve a block or all these different things, apparatuses and everything. And I just... I refused to believe it. I believed at that point that God could heal me. Um, I was new in my faith on some level and didn't really understand what I was declaring over my body or anything like that. Uh, So it wasn't like some amazing faith moment. I think it was just maybe me being stubborn. Shocker. And uh, I was like, listen, I'm going to, I believe God's going to heal me. And so we went back and forth and um, I was, I accepted crutches because I thought people had crutches for a time. So that looked normal. So I had crutches, and um, I remember being in my home and so angry, so angry about the whole situation, angry at myself, angry about the game, angry about people that cut trees down, (laughs) angry about how disruptive this was to my life, how unfair it all was, and then hearing these trite, like, encouragements, like, hey, you're going to be all right. Like, you don't know if I'm going to be all right. What are you talking about? People meaning well, but saying things that, that they couldn't possibly understand what I was going through. They had no idea the depth of my pain and anguish and the things that were going on in my mind. I was just determined to walk again, believing that God would heal me, but just honestly out of sheer willpower that I would walk again. And so I I remember very distinctly being in my living room and trying to hold the crutches out and trying to take a step and just falling time and time again. We had hardwood floors. I would just fall and I'd get bruises and split skin open from falling so hard because I couldn't take the weight on my knee. I didn't want to risk significant injury. And so I would just fall. And I remember my mom, I'm getting emotional now thinking about it. Um, I remember my mom crying and being like, Claude, would you just, would you stop? Would you just stop? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to stop. Like, you don't understand. You don't, I might not walk again. I'm not going to stop. And she's like, I just can't take watching you fall. I can't take the, he- the way it sounds when you, just, when you hit the hardwood floors. And so I went outside. And so I would go outside, and there was a little loop in my yard. And I would just walk and, because the ground outside was softer. And I remember falling one time in particular. I just fell on the ground pretty hard. And I rolled over, and I remember looking up at the sky, and I heard my mom walk off the deck into the house, just kind of sniffling. And I had tears well up, and they ran down. And those moments where you kind of ugly cry, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) And I'm just out on my back, ugly crying, and just filling my ears with tears, looking up at the sky and watching these clouds go over and be like, God, you are so mean. So mean. And I thought in that moment, no one in the world understands what I'm going through. 
And so the question I want you to consider as we go through this, the message this morning is why is it so easy to feel like no one understands our struggle? Why is it so easy to feel like no one understands our struggle? Whether you're 13 years old being like, Dad, you don't get it. You're not a boy. <laughs> you were never a teenager. Yes, I was. Yes, I am. <laughs> I honestly think it's easy for us to feel like nobody understands our struggle for two reasons. And one or both of them may resonate with you this morning. The first reason is that we want to believe that no one understands our struggle. The first reason why it's so easy to feel like no one understands our struggle is because we want to believe it. We want to believe that no one understands our struggle because if no one understands, then they lose their right to weigh in on our situation, right? We want to shut others up. We want to give ourselves permission to act however we want because after all, no one understands. You don't understand. You don't have a right. Where do you get off telling me? You don't understand the circumstances of my life. In fact, I said maybe at the beginning of this when I said, listen, maybe you've never been told you may not walk again. Maybe you have been told that. Have you had a stump ever stuck in your knee? You know what I mean? I could make it so specific. I could just go on and go on and go on until finally everyone in the world would have to say, okay, I don't understand that. And then I'd, and then I'd be able to say, right. You don't get my struggle. How dare you tell me anything? You see, we want to believe that. We want to believe that no one can understand our struggle so no one can have a right to speak into our lives, to weigh in on the way we act, to try to correct the emotions of our life. The second reason is because we buy into the lie. We buy into the lie that we're actually alone. Here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting about this lie. What we all have in common as humans, Christian or not, and I realize the room is full of a diversity of people, ranging all the way from committed Christ follower to absolute skeptic of whether or not there even is a God and everyone in between. But whether or not you're a Christian, as a human being, we all sometimes feel alone. We all have it in common. Isn't that like bizarre? The one thing we all have in common, the one thing that should connect all of us is actually that we feel that we're connected to no one at some point. You might sit there and say, no, I've, I've really never felt alone, I don't think. I beg to differ. I think I could go through examples where you felt like you were alone, like you didn't belong, like maybe people didn't understand your struggle or your situation. I can easily put it this way. Have you ever been in a crowded room and felt like you were completely alone? We've all experienced that. Like it resonates with every single person in this room. You're in a crowd of friends, you're in a crowd of family, and you're like, which one of these ones don't belong? Me. The moment, the situation, whether it's at work or in your home or at school or whatever situation, there are moments that you feel alone. So maybe for you, it's that it's easy for you to, to feel like nobody understands your struggle because you want to believe it so that you have a right to kind of impose the way you're acting. Or maybe it's because you've bought into the lie that you're alone. Here's the truth. You aren't alone. Someone does understand your struggle. 
In fact, I'll show you how this, morning, uh, how this morning's text actually proves that because I think sometimes it becomes a trite statement, you know, like, listen, you're not alone. You're like, really? I feel alone. Well, someone understands what you're going through. Like, I'm not so sure they do. So let's go through the text and understand why this connects to actually refute that lie that we believe. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 again. It begins at verse 6. It says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while, for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we need not see everything at present, sorry, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So let's navigate the, this text a little bit because it can be somewhat confusing if you don't understand the context of the scripture that we're reading. The, the somewhere, right? It says uh, it's been testified somewhere and then it goes into quotations depending on the text that you're looking at. It's in quotes, uh, the end part of verse six uh, into the first part of verse eight. The reason why it's in quotations is because it's Psalm uh, 8, verses 4 through 6. So it's actually quoting the Old Testament. So the author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament, Psalm, uh, a section of Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Now, here's what's interesting about it is it says, it has been testified somewhere. Now, the author of Hebrews was actually very theologically um, uh, grounded and rooted and understood very well where this text was from. And uh, the readers of this would have understood exactly where it was as well. So it's almost like kind of a, a play on words in the sense that the author is saying, you know what this text says. You know what this says. We need to understand the original context of what the Psalm is to understand what the author of Hebrews is actually saying. Uh, Psalm 8 is a psalm written by David, uh, King David. And so uh, he was a, a prolific king in history. And uh, you can spend some time reading up on him either historically or within the Bible. Uh, king David wrote Psalm chapter 8 and he wrote it concerning creation. Okay, so Psalm chapter 8 is actually King David's commentary on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. All right. So what we have is we have Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, quoting David from Psalm chapter 8, who is writing a commentary from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So you have to understand that Psalm 8 is actually a hymn of praise that would have been sung by the Hebrew people. And it would have been celebrating their place in the created order. All right. So King David wrote a song about Genesis 1 and 2, about creation, about humanity, about mankind, about uh, man and womankind, about humanity in life. And it uh, was a song that Hebrews would have sung, good little Hebrew lads and lassies <laughs> would have sung it. And so they would have been very, very familiar with this quotation out of Psalm chapter 8. Verse 7, which is a section of that, says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. What this is talking about in the, in the created order is literally clarifying, listen, there is God, then there are created angels, and then there is humanity. 
And then if you read all of Psalm 8, it goes on to describe all of created animals that then followed. And so it's this idea of authority, this idea of where humanity falls in the creation order. Verse 8 goes on and says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this, uh, this text of Psalm chapter 8 would have been sung and known as a song about humanity being mindful, that God is mindful of man, that God is mindful of woman, that, they, that God cares for them, that they made them for a little while lower than the angels, that you have crowned him with glory and honor. And then verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the, the created beings of the earth, the animals, the world, the created uh, beings of the earth are in subjection under mankind. And then it goes on and it says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Speaking of humanity. And then it goes on at the end. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This seems confusing. (laughs) It seems confusing at best because it's talking about mankind Humankind, the the text there talking about not only Adam, but also Eve, and the fact that humankind has been put in authority over all of creation to maintain the garden. So Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about maintaining the Garden of Eden. It's talking about dealing with animals in all of creation. And so the, the, the text here is actually talking about how everything is under subjection to humanity, but then it goes on and says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection. It sounds like a contradiction of itself, but in fact, it's revealing something. It's revealing something. In Genesis, Adam is connected with creation. What I mean by that is that there's a, uh, they function in harmony. So if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that uh, Adam is actually uh, naming the animals, that uh, he's not fearful of them. There's no like, and then Adam was bit by a lion, you know, <laughs> and then he hid for 24 days because he heard a bear coming, you know, and so Adam horrified because Eve was almost eaten by an ape. Like it doesn't happen, right? He's functioning in, in this harmony that we quite can't comprehend. And so the Garden of Eden is this place where humanity has authority over creation in a unique way where there's no death, there's no disease, there's no fear of animals, there's no fear of natural disasters, there's no sin. But then Adam turned away from God. He pursued positioning himself as the God of his own life. And he fractured creation. Sin enters the world and fractures creation. As sin comes in, all of a sudden, plants die. Animals attack. Natural disasters. All of creation begins to moan because it's fractured by sin. I used to be kind of frustrated at Adam. Like, seriously, Adam? Like, Seriously, you just couldn't have left that thing alone. Whatever it was, if it was an apple, whatever form of fruit. The fact that that he wanted to position himself in such a way that he wanted knowledge. 
He wanted to be like God. I used to get frustrated until I realized how often I pursue positioning myself as the God of my own life, right? It's something that, that resonates almost too close. It's nothing that we really ever remove ourselves from except we remind continually our hearts and minds of the fact that there is only one true God of our lives. Otherwise, we're in this cycle of trying to place ourselves back into the position of authority. So because of sin, because of sin at present, we don't see everything in subjection to humanity. That's why. And so the first part of this morning's text would have made a lot of sense to the Hebrew people. Would have been like, okay, I get it. There's this fracture in humanity and, uh, and we are as humanity uh, in, in, uh, in authority, in created order, and um, I get it, until verse 9. There's a turning point. There's a turning point in verse 9 that says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. It sounds like redundancy. It's going back to the psalm. But it seems to be talking about someone else. In fact, then it says, namely, Jesus. Namely, Jesus. And so what's happening now is the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you know the psalm you always sung about? I want to tell you that the one that was made lower than the angels for a time is namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what we see for the first time in the book of Hebrews or in the letter to Hebrews, we see Jesus being mentioned by name. For the first time. And the author is revealing that King David's commentary on Genesis 1 and 2 that they sung about, Psalm 8, is actually fulfilled in Jesus. So this song about humanity that fell short, that doesn't ultimately have authority, is actually fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus, the Davidic king and Messiah, stepped into humanity and humbled himself lower than the angels for a time. He became both God and man. He became what's referred to in theological circles as the second Adam. He became the second Adam, was tempted, but did not sin. Yet he paid sin's penalty. He paid death. This would have been revolutionary to uh, the, the Christian converts of, uh, that were Hebrew in upbringing, they would be realizing, like connecting some dots, like, wait a second. So the thing that we sang about, about us being in created order, the thing that King David spoke about and that we sung about is actually fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. It's not fulfilled in our own striving to be as holy and as good little Hebrews as we can be, but it's actually filled, fulfilled only through the work and life of Jesus Christ. You see, when he was on a cross, dying the death that we deserve, he cried out. Jesus cried out something unique. He cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus, in the moment that he took on the sin of the world, he was truly alone. So that you and I would never be alone. You see, we think that we're alone, but we can't possibly understand what it looks like to not have God present. The void, 
of creator in our life. To the point where Jesus himself would say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Listen, if you think you're alone, it's a lie you need to replace with the truth of the gospel. Allow the gospel to illuminate your perspective. Allow the gospel and that which Jesus has done to illuminate every aspect of your life that you actually are capable of having a different perspective. A different perspective on your situation, a different perspective on your struggles, and on your circumstances. And so I'm laying there with my ears filling with my own tears, looking up at the sky, declaring how mean God is. And I felt this sense within me. I didn't hear a voice or anything like that. I'm always amazed by people that say that they have. I I had never have heard the voice of God. But I felt this prompting within me of like, would I still serve God if I could never walk again? It was like it washed over me in this moment as I was just ugly crying in the middle of my yard. And I looked up at the clouds and the trees. I'm getting emotional again because it's so palatable. And I just out loud said, God, if I never walk again, you're still worthy of my praise. You gave me the breath in my lungs. You gave me sight to my eyes. How dare I say that you're not worthy if I never walk again? You gave me the ability to walk if you want to take it for some reason I don't understand. You're God. You're big. I'm small. You get it. I don't. Your perspective is greater than my perspective. And so God, if, if I never walk again, okay, I'll still serve you. And in that moment of thinking, no one understands what I'm going through, I realized someone actually does know what I've gone through. But here's the deal. I think in Christendom, in church circles, in well-meaning little flannel board environments where people are like, Jesus is real all the time, all the time. Jesus is real, you know, like, yay. That then we hear these statements like, hey, God knows what you're going through. And you're like, all right, I don't know. I don't know that God ever, like, I don't remember reading somewhere in the New Testament that Jesus had a stump going his knee. So I'm not so sure. Like, I don't know if God's up in heaven. It's like, what just happened to Claude? Oh, hold on. Boom, yeah. Hey, listen, I'm identifying with you right now. I know the struggles of your life. And uh, so, hey, I'm God. What else? What else you got? You know? That's what I would think in my mind. Like, no, God doesn't understand. God's never been fired from a job. God's never been unemployed. Like, he's always got it, you know? Like, hey, I'm God. I kind of got this thing locked down. Right? So we, we, we tend to think in our lives like this idea that maybe God understands, but what we really think is that God is just kind of sympathetic to our pitiful situation, <laughs> right? But here's the deal. In that moment, I realized God understanding my situation is because God's never left me. 
He knows every thought that I've had. He's been present in the tears that no one else has seen shed. He's he's heard the cries of my spirit, the things I can't even put into words. He's been present in those moments. God knows what I've been through because he's been with me through it. He's been with me through it. He's been with you through it. God has never left you and he's never forsaken you because Jesus was alone and forsaken so that you'll never be alone and you'll never be forsaken. That in the darkest depths of your most broken moments, God is there. That he's in the valley of the darkness. That he's walking alongside you. The lie that you believe that you're alone or that he can't understand or that in some way he musters up sympathetic kind of kindness towards you is a ripped off version of the truth. The truth is he intimately knows every thought desperately loves you. Jesus didn't die for the world in some general and distant way. He died for you in a very personal way. He knows your struggles and he loves you in the midst of your disobedience, in the midst of your struggling, in the midst of your heartache, your brokenness, in the midst of your rebellion. He loves you. He'll never leave or forsake you. If you truly understand that, let me say it like this. If you'll truly allow yourself to understand that, then Jesus' humility will transform how you look at your life situations. When you see the humility of Christ and the reality that he stepped into humanity, for you. It will reorient and illuminate your perspective. It will change the way you interact with yourself and the the way you interact with others. You see, we interact with ourselves in some ways because of the way we've been taught to interact with ourselves. We're as valuable as someone has spoken into our life or has lied about our value. And so we formulate our identity with all these voices. If you can imagine for me, think about that. Remove yourself from the situation and pretend you're looking at someone else for a moment. Think about the world that we live in and imagine for a second if someone gained their identity just based on all the stuff that other people say. Think about how insecure they would be. How self-conscious they would be, how alone they would feel in the midst of a crowded room, how quickly they'd believe a lie just for the sake of feeling some sense of self-worth. And then realize the truth of the gospel transforms every part of that narrative. Because who we are is who God says we are. We're, child, we're children of the living God, worthy of his sacrifice, intimately knowing us. When we really understand the grace that's been awarded to us, can we really withhold grace from others? If we understand the depth of our depravity and what it is we've been forgiven of, 
Can we really withhold forgiveness from others? Think about that for a second. Think about what it is that Christ has done for us. If we can understand the humility that Jesus displayed and what it is that he did for us, how dare we not extend that to everyone we come in contact with? We would be quick to love, slow to anger. We would extend grace and mercy where it's undeserved and unexpected. That we would be agents of change in the world that we live in. That we would go into the marketplace not greedy and ready to grab, but humble and ready to give. We often say that the text requires something from us here at Centerway. And this morning, the text requires something from us. And so I want you to consider an application as you leave here today. In a moment, we're going to respond. But before we do that, we go into a response through song. I want to consider a question for you to apply to your life. The question is this. How will I apply Christ's humility to change my perspective? How will I apply Christ's humility to change my perspective? That's where the rubber meets the road, right? We can come here and be like, oh yeah, that's true. You know what? I'm, listen, that's, that's so good. I needed to hear that. I have value. I need to be nicer to people. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about applying Christ's humility, the, the reality of the truth of the gospel to change your perspective in every area of your life. And so maybe this morning, your application is to stop trying to be the leader of your own life. Maybe your application this morning is to stop trying to be the God of your own life. That actually it's time to ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here and you have never prayed that prayer, asking Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life, I want to encourage you to consider crossing that line of salvation. It's as simple as a prayer this morning that you can pray in the quietness of your own seat. Just say, Lord, I'm I'm a sinner, but I know that you paid the price for me. You know me. Father, would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. For others of you, maybe you've crossed that line of salvation. Maybe the application looks different. So I want to encourage you to take a moment to just bow your heads, close your eyes if you would. You can leave your eyes open if you're you'd prefer to, but I just don't want you to be distracted as the music team makes their way forward. As they come up this morning with your head bowed, I just want you to consider how you'll apply Christ's humility to change your perspective. Like I said, if you've crossed that line of salvation before, maybe for you this morning, it looks like extending grace, forgiveness, Maybe it looks like restoring a relationship. A relationship that you've stayed in the way of restoration. It's interesting how we can, can experience hurt and sit in your seat and you might say, listen, Pastor Claude, like you, you have no idea. You don't understand the hurt they caused. Like you don't get it. You don't understand what it was. You're right. I don't. I don't understand. I don't pretend to know. 
but I know Jesus does. Not in some weird, generic way, but because he was with you in the midst of that pain and difficulty. Not because he caused it, but because immediately he was redeeming it. That in the midst of the brokenness of the world we live in, the sin that fractures every relationship and aspect, that in the midst of that difficulty, God was at work redeeming it for his glory and for your joy. So you don't have to be bound by it this morning. And so maybe this morning it means having a a conversation with someone. Maybe it means this, and I'll just say it because I understand there are mean and hurtful people that you don't want to expose yourself to just to be abused. Because I understand there are abusive situations in the world. And I'm not telling you to position yourself before an abuser to be taken advantage of. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about creating space and margin in your life to forgive them. And maybe it looks like writing them a letter you never mail. Maybe it just means sitting in the quietness of your room and penning a letter saying, I forgive you and writing out the hurt and the pain and praying through that pain and having yourself an ugly cry like like you never believe and just say, I'm going to forgive them. They don't even know the hurt they caused or they know the hurt. They know it. But God, I'm going to forgive them because you forgave me. Because you forgive me of so much. And so God, I'm going to, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to leave it here. I don't know what it looks like for you, but the text requires something of you. And maybe this morning you're pain-free. There's someone that needs to see grace. Someone that needs a, a taste of mercy that they don't deserve. We have people in all walks of life here. All different spheres of influence. Imagine if every sphere represented in this place, we went in with a gospel-centered perspective, the way we could transform that dynamic. We could be agents of change. Could live on mission, representing the Christ that so desperately loves us. So I don't know what it looks like for you this morning. But I want to take a moment, just a moment of of silence before we go into worship, into response, to just reflect. You can play. Just a moment of reflection to consider what it is that the Lord might be speaking. Because he's been there with you. And he's here this morning with you.